Alrighty, well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to our Wednesday night devotion and prayer service here for Lakeview Baptist Church. Uh, it's such an honor and a privilege once again to be addressing you here in the house of God, um, speaking, of course, to God's saints tonight. I, I pray that that these, these are services that you long for. I pray that these would be services that you have in your heart a desire to be a part of, that you would desire to sit under the preaching of the Word of God, that you would have a desire to pray with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It, it is truly an amazing blessing and privilege that we have. Uh, tonight I want to be talk, talking to you about the, the person of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, one of my special um, a favorite Puritan authors back in the 17th century, he wrote this book. It was, it was all about, it was a compilation of different sermons on Jesus Christ. And, and he entitled this volume, The Fountain of Life, Meditorial Glories of the Persian of Jesus Christ. The Fountain of Life. Christ is the one being through whom all life flows. And, and we mean that not only in a spiritual sense, as far as spiritual life and, and, and spiritual meaning, things like that, but in a literal sense too. For what is our lives but things that have been created by God? And, and the Bible says, as we will observe tonight, that all things have been created through Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be talking about Him tonight, uh, who is the fountain of life. And so you can open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 1. We are going to be starting off there, but tonight, really, I want to do sort of a survey of a variety of different texts of Scripture. The, the purpose for this is that I, I want to look at different places in the Bible to sort of develop for you a, a particular idea, a particular theological concept that I think will be very important for us to behold. I want to talk specifically about the humanity of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Well, now why is that? Well, as most of you are aware, we are in the middle of what is called the Holy Week, the week leading up to Easter and Good Friday. And so this concept of the humanity of Christ would normally be something that uh, pastors and preachers you know, really want to address around Christmas time. But I, I think as we contemplate the glory of the incarnation of, of Jesus Christ, that it is not only relevant to our understanding of Good Friday and Easter, but it is extremely necessary to understand this if we are going to properly understand what it is that we are remembering and honoring in our hearts as we celebrate Good Friday and Resurrection Sunday. We need to understand Jesus Christ as God-man to understand what it is that is happening on the cross. So the first place that I want to look at and observe is found in that most holy prologue of John's Gospel, the first chapter of the Gospel of John. And so as some of you know, I am teaching verse by verse through the Gospel of John right now in, in Sunday school here at Lakeview and 
Just a side note, if you're not yet in a Sunday school class, we would just, just love to have you. And, and so one of the things that is so striking about the Gospel of John, about that book which we have observed, is that it seems wholly bent on answering one very simple question, an important question. And that is this question, who is Jesus Christ? Now, anyone can ask that question, and in our day and in our fallen world, there are many different uh, views, many different opinions and ideas about who Jesus is, but what's so unique about and special about John's gospel is that it seeks to answer this question, who is Jesus Christ, from Jesus' perspective. We have this theme being developed about the witnesses to Christ. And there are a number of these witnesses. John the Baptist is a witness. Jesus' works are a witness. The scriptures are a witness. And then finally, Jesus says this in chapter 8. He says, look, even if I do bear witness about myself, my testimony is true. For I know where I came from and where I am going. But you do not know where I come from or where I am going. He goes on to say, I am the one who bears witness about myself And the Father who sent me bears witness about me. The number one question that is being asked is simply, who is Jesus? And what does Jesus say is so necessary to understand there. He says, I am able to bear witness about myself with my testimony being true. And this is the reason he gives, for I know where I came from and where I am going. So understanding where it is that Jesus comes from based upon his own words, is going to be important for us in understanding who it is that he is. Well, in John chapter 1, the very first verse in the gospel, we have what some have called the Holy Spirit's witness to Jesus. We read these words, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning. And I I just want to stop there. Now, John is, of course, Jewish, and he's writing to a very Jewish audience. Uh, The Gospel of John, people sometimes don't realize, is just packed full with Old Testament citations and Old Testament allusions, which is why we can't unhitch from the Old Testament, as some very popular uh, best-selling pastors would like us to think. And so that phrase, in the beginning, in the Greek, lines up, perfectly with the Septuagint's rendering of Genesis 1-1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And so to the the Jewish audience, when they hear the phrase, in the beginning, and and of course this was a group of people that learned auditorially, that is, you know, verbal communication, uh, sometimes more than anything. And so they would hear those words, in the beginning, And since they had grown up reading Genesis, they would think, okay, in the beginning, God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The next thing that they expect to hear is God. Well, what does the text in John say? It says, in the beginning was the Word. The Word, the Logos, is in the place of God. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. The the, the person, the Word, 
is God. And he's also with God. And then paralleling the text in Genesis, which after we read, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, that text in Genesis which tells us and describes God's creating all things, here in John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he says, all things were made through him, that is, the word. And without him was not anything made that was made. And then so here is where we see really one of the most condescending verses in the entire Bible. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The word through whom all things were created assumes the very nature of his creation. He becomes flesh. And not just a part of flesh or a portion of it, for Christ was not 50% man and 50% God. The Word was God, truly God. What does that mean? It means He has all the characteristics of that which is divine. And He becomes flesh. And in the same way, He has all the characteristics of that which is human. So Jesus becomes the God-man. And by the way, as we will observe, he doesn't merely become flesh, but specifically, he becomes flesh after human flesh has already been tainted by and affected with sin. Now, this is not saying that Christ was sinful in any regard, for his holiness is infinite, but his human body during his time here on earth had the effects of sin on it. He grew tired. He was weary. He was hungry. He was thirsty and all of these different things. The Word, the Logos, God, the supreme ruler and creator of all things, got tired, got hungry, got thirsty. You see, this is the condescension that Jesus takes upon himself. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is, and I know it's a big word, but it's an important word, the incarnation. The Creator of all things taking the form of His creation. Now, never before in history has such a humiliating and demeaning act been performed by a person. Now, this was not some embarrassing accident, for as we will well observe in a moment, this was a voluntary act on the part of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son. Now, it has been said by some theologians that any time God speaks to or reveals himself to man, that it is a condescension on his part. Now, condescension, what am I saying there? It is a lowering of himself onto our level. For the chasm that exists between God and man is infinite. And yet, God so loves his creatures that he speaks to Adam in the garden, establishing his covenant with him. He forms his covenants with Noah and with Abraham. And he inspires Moses to write the scriptures and afterwards has sent so many prophets to speak to his people. And in each of those instances, the Lord of glory, 
the majesty on high, who is infinite and eternal, the one through whom all things whatsoever come to pass, whether in existence or in the providential order of history, he has to lower himself, in a manner of speaking, to utilize the language of weak and lowly creatures such as ourselves and use their language so as to communicate to them. Do you not realize that the Bible that you hold in your hands, you hold because God has so condescended himself that he who is infinite, holy, 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 has decided that he wanted to speak to you through his word? That is what is happening in the Bible. It is a condescension on God's part. Anytime that God would speak to us lowly creatures. Such an act is completely undeserved by the creatures to whom God is speaking. And yet God does it. Now why does he do that? Well, he chooses to do that in order to glorify himself in this way. For how glorious and how precious is the love of the Almighty for his creatures, for his people. And yet, in the person of Jesus, God does not merely speak to us and assume our language, he assumes our flesh, which he created. He assumes a very human nature. This is such a humbling act that Paul, the Apostle Paul, actually uses this as a sermon illustration when exhorting the Philippian church to have humility of mind. Now this, you can turn in your Bible if you want to Philippians chapter 2. This is a very familiar section of Scripture. It's known as the Carmen Christi. Uh, many people believe that this, was, this is actually an example of a hymn in the early church, which, as the one preacher said, I wish we had access to their hymn book because, you know, wow, this is just incredible stuff. Well, here in, in Philippians chapter 2, beginning in verse 5, we read this. Paul says, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now what I want you to especially notice is what it says in verse 7 there. He emptied himself. We say that this act of Jesus was humiliating, but I am not using that word necessarily as we do in our common way of speaking. For I am not intending to communicate that Christ was embarrassed in the sense in which he had egg on his face or anything like that in his incarnation as if something unexpected happened to him. Why? Well, because in the incarnation, Jesus, when he takes on human flesh, 
He is doing something that he is deciding to do. He opted to do it of his own will. There were not external factors pressing in on the Son of God to do this thing. For while he always acted in accordance to the will of his Father, his will is at such a perfect unity with his Father that there is no compulsion. There is no reluctancy when Jesus acts. It is a self-giving of the Son of God when He does this. He emptied Himself. Now, commenting on the glorious wonder of the Incarnation, one of my dearest Puritan divines, John Flavel, he writes this in text on the text there, insight on the text there in Philippians. He says, For the sun to fall from its sphere and be degraded into a wandering atom, for an angel to be turned out of heaven and be converted into a silly fly or worm, have been no such great abasement, for they were but creatures before, and so they would abide still, though in an inferior order or species of creatures. The distance betwixt the highest and lowest species of creatures is but a finite distance. The angel and the worm dwell not so far asunder, But for the infinite, glorious creator of all things to become a creature is a mystery exceeding all human understanding. The distance betwixt God and the highest order of creatures is an infinite distance. So here's the thing. We have established, and I think, well, I I pray hopefully rather clearly and faithfully, the intense humbling act of the Son of God when He assumes human nature. And so for me to just stop right here and just walk out of the pulpit and to go sit there in the pews with you and for us all to just sort of look up to the sky with our jaws to the floor as we contemplate the magnificent wonder that is the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ, just that, just this alone would be an awesome Thing and I don't mean awesome as in you know you know wow the, these wings were awesome or something like that. I'm using that in its most literal sense because the fact that the Creator of all things would become united with His creation in this way is a literally awe-inspiring thing that ought to leave every one of us speechless if we care about it at all. There's more to it than that. In that passage from Philippians we just read, Paul also writes this about Jesus. Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You see, our Lord united himself with us, not only by taking on the likeness of our flesh, but he united himself with us by dying the death that one dies in the flesh. And not just any old death, for it did not suit the purposes 
of the Son of Man to die peacefully in his sleep. It did not suit him to depart from this world blissfully surrounded by loved ones giving him comfort. No, Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, came into this world. The the Lord of glory and the creator of all things takes on human flesh for the particular and incredibly fantastic purpose of dying the death that one dies on a cross. He suffered. He bled. He was in anguish. He was in pain. And and to think, oh, how many pleasures you and I experience in this life, and yet our Lord in, in His final moments was as far away from these things as could be even remotely possible. This is the reason why the incarnation is so important. For the incarnation allows Jesus to be subjected to this kind of truly humiliating torture. In John chapter 18, verse 22, we read this. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand saying, is that how you answer the high priest? Now, just simply reading to you that verse, just reading to you that statement, is enough to make any Christian's heart skip a beat, to cause you to want to just hide away from everyone else and go into your closet and weep. And I just ask you, does your heart not burn with righteous indignation at the very notion that someone would look at lovely Jesus, who is my Savior and my Shepherd, and slap Him in the face? And speak to Him that way? To speak to Him in such a degrading manner? Sir, if it had not been for His holy and divine providence, you would not even be standing there with the very breath that is in your lungs, which you are utilizing to blaspheme Him, which you are utilizing to sin against Him. This is the arrogance of humankind. This is the arrogance of sinful flesh that we are observing here. That a creature, a creature, one whose very existence depends upon the majesty and the Lord Jesus Christ through whom he was created, he thinks that he has the right to look at him and slap him on the face and say, you dare speak to the high priest in this way? Sir, you do not know who it is that you're talking to. But yet, what is happening every moment of our lives and in every moment of the lives of those around us when we sin, when we in our pride and in our arrogance, we look at the law of God and we look at the Word of God and we say, what right do you have to dictate how I live my life? What are we doing other than slapping in His face every time we sin against Him? And yet, yet this is what's happening here. And, and this is what Jesus opens himself up to when he takes on human flesh. This, this is the level of abuse that our precious master, the creator of all things, subjects himself to. And yet this is not where it ended. For the suffering our Lord would endure was far from complete. And, and, and at this moment, I want to invite you to follow along, open, uh, turn to Mark chapter 15. 
Mark chapter 15, and now, of course, all four of the Gospels give us an account of the sufferings of Jesus. Uh, I'm reading to you Mark's account because, because I think it's the most biting in its descriptive nature. And, and so in Mark chapter 15, beginning in verse 16, we read this. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him. Hail, king of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. And divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right hand and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days... Save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. Can he not save himself? Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and, and filled a sponge with sour wine, putting it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. Jesus, after having been slapped on the face, endures tragedies that make that sinful act of rebellion seem like nothing. Our Lord is mocked verbally. He is stripped he is flogged, they, they twist a crown of thorns and they rest it upon his head. He's nailed to a wooden cross, he hangs up there to die. The wounds of the flogging, by the way, exposing his internal organs and bones only to increase the level of agony that he was experiencing. His struggle to breathe as every breath would cause his body to flex in such a way that would increase the tension on the nails magnifying the excruciating level of pain that he was going through. John writes this in his account of Jesus' death in, in John 19. He says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the Scripture, 
I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. There, here we have Jesus in his final moments of agony, after he had been mocked, after he had been treated like a pest to get rid of by corrupt political leaders and wicked, sinful man, there he is hanging on the cross saying, I thirst. I thirst. Do you realize this? Do you realize what is going on here? We behold the excruciating pain and anguish and suffering and torture and affliction and agony and torment and misery and aching that is experienced by this person here, Jesus Christ. But we must remember this. We must put these things into perspective because He who is experiencing this torture and this affliction is the one through whom all things are created. Ladies and gentlemen, the flesh that was being beaten and was bleeding on that cross was the flesh that the Son of God selflessly took upon Himself for the very purpose of allowing that flesh to be tormented until He died. I need to put this in perspective because we are human beings. We are in the flesh, even after our conversion. And so when we think about what it is that we are going to be remembering this coming weekend on, on Good Friday, our focus is oftentimes to put very much of our attention and our contemplation and our meditation upon the physical agony that Jesus experienced. And there's, there's nothing wrong with that. And I don't want to take away from anything from that. But because we're in the flesh, when we see Jesus' flesh being stricken, that is what sticks out to us most. Because for our nature is whatever we can see and behold or can relate to, that, that's sort of what captures our mind. But to limit our understanding of what's happening on the cross to only be the physical anguish and torment Jesus experienced would, would, would be wrong, would be to give us an incomplete and inadequate realization of what it is he's gone through. When Jesus cries out those words on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? What is going on there? What is, what is he saying? He utters this cry because he who was in the beginning with God in undying love and unending harmony who abided in his bosom and was daily his delights, was now suffering under his very wrath, indignation, and hatred against sin. Now I want you to understand something. 
the love that exists between the members of the Trinity, the love that exists between Father and Son, is a love more intimate, more tender, and more precious than anything we have ever experienced in our miserable lives. This is the greatest, most intimate and precious expression and bond of love that there ever was when talking about the Father and the Son. And yet the Son is experiencing the full, unrelenting, unvanquished, holy wrath and anger and fury of God the Father. That was all being poured out upon Him, the sinless Son of God in full. This, this is how Jesus emptied Himself. And this is an incredible thing. Yet it was also a purposeful thing. Now, I will not get into all of the, the details now, but as you may know, when Jesus cries out those words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the Old Testament. He's quoting a prophecy about his death found in Psalm 22. Now, this is significant. Why? Well, because it tells you that Jesus is taking on of human flesh, is being tortured, and suffering under the wrath of his Father was planned from the beginning. It was always meant to be this way. This was God's very intention and purpose for how he would redeem people in, in, in history. And beloved, here is the love of God that shines through these bleak, dark, and dreary things. You see, the Bible says that God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. While we were sinners, while we were the very ones who at the time of his incarnation, had it not been for the grace of God, we would have been the very ones standing there slapping him, mocking him, ridiculing him, casting lots for his garments. I don't want you to think for a moment. I don't want for a single second in any of your minds or in any of your hearts to think, well, if I had been there at the time of Jesus, I would not have been one of them. I would have been on the right side. That's exactly what Peter thought. And what did he do? He denied the Lord three times. And I want you to understand something. That the man standing here tonight, wearing a cross around his neck and a Bible in front of him, who is delivering to you the Word of God, were it not for the grace of God upon my heart and my life, I would have been the very one standing there mocking Jesus while He suffered and died for sinners. Why? Because that is what the natural man does. That is, what, that is the kind of rebellion and hatred that we were engaged in, in our natural state. And yet, what does this text of Scripture say? It says, God shows His love for us. And that while, present tense, we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You see, it is through His incarnation. It is through His affliction. It is through the suffering under the wrath of the Father that you and I are brought into sweet peace and reconciliation with God. Because you and I are the ones who sinned. Not Christ. Not, not Jesus. Not for a moment 
did he deserve what he was going through on the cross. Not for a moment has his holiness come anywhere near to sinning, and the thought of it is a thought unthinkable. But the testimony of Scripture is this. The Bible says, for our sake, that is, on behalf of, for the benefit of the people of God, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, it is Jesus' act of taking on the punishment of our sin, allowing himself to be seen in the very sight of God as though he had committed our sins, him being imputed with our sin, where he suffered the wrath of the Father. It is his doing that. It is that that allows us, by our faith in him, to be seen in the sight of God as though we had lived his life. God treats Jesus as if Jesus were me, and God treats me as if I were Jesus. That's the love of God for sinners. That that is the message, the very heart and substance of the gospel. That is the message that we proclaim. That is the message that gives you and I life. That is the message that this dying, lost, sinful world needs to hear. And we think, well, I don't want to say anything to my unbelieving family members or friends because I don't want to upset them. Listen, you need to tell them this. You need to let them know that the one who knew no sin was made to be sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. What, what other hope do they have than in Christ? And what would be so selfish as to keep this to ourselves? Was the message of, God, of the gospel intended to be locked up in the basement? Or was it intended to be preached from the housetops and exclaimed in the streets? And so, this week, as you contemplate Good Friday, as you contemplate Resurrection Sunday, as you contemplate the passion of Jesus Christ, I want you to think about this truth. I want you to think about the fact that God, the creator of the universe, literally and actually assumed human flesh. And this is an act most humbling in itself as we have observed. Yet this act was intended for a specific purpose. He assumed flesh so that he could have his flesh flogged and nailed to a cross. And so that in the flesh, he who loved God the Father, and was loved by the Father, and this is a love so rare and so harmonious and so perfect and so beautiful that it cannot be compared to anything on this earth. He allows Himself in the flesh to suffer under His Father's wrath. And beloved, this was done for you. This was done so that every single person throughout space or time who believes in Jesus and believes in His death and resurrection, would be made right with God. For oh, how we have sinned so mightily, but He conquers sin. Let the love of God that shines through this act of condescension overwhelm you and knock you to your knees. Let it melt your mind and allow the reality of it all to find a resting place in your heart. Do not Overlook this. Do not for a moment think that this is unimportant. And, 
listen, I realize this, uh, that, you know, this weekend, you and your families are, are going to have a lot of going on. There's going to be a lot of activities. There's going to be a lot of busyness. Um, you know, we, we call it a holiday. I really think holiday is too insignificant a word to describe what it is that we are talking about here. But please, amidst it all, find the time. Please find the time. I, I, I am begging you sincerely to find the time amidst all the chaos and, and the hectic nature of this weekend to just get alone with God in silence, have a meeting with Him, contemplate what it is the Son of God has done to redeem you. Set your mind on what it is that He has done for you because this is what it is that we are attempting to or striving to honor and remember this coming weekend. I want to appreciate, I want to thank you for your listening. And Brother Bill is going to come and close us in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for a spirit-filled sermon tonight.